Good morning, everyone. Good to see you all this morning. Um, I want you to turn your Bibles this morning to Matthew chapter 9. I'm going to look at a a brief portion of Scripture this morning and then uh, work at developing some principles from it that I think will help us in our life as a church and in our lives as followers of Jesus Christ. Matthew chapter 9. Let's begin reading in verse 35. The text says, Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. Father, as we come to your truth and we see this uh, beautiful example of the heart of Christ, uh, Lord, we are, will be deeply challenged as we seek to uh, emulate and model his life in our world. Uh, For that end, Lord, we need your help, and we pray uh, that your help would be with us and strengthen us uh, so that we may effectively represent the Savior uh, in the world that you have called us to live in. Bless this church family, Lord. Let us be effective in reaching this community with the good news of our Savior, Jesus. We ask this in his precious name, and all God's people said, amen, amen. Uh, Louis Armstrong wrote a song called What a Wonderful World, which is a Beautiful song uh, in terms of its sentiment. He said this. He said, I see trees of green, red roses too. I see them bloom for me and you. And I think to myself, what a wonderful world. The colors of the rainbow so pretty in the sky are also on the faces of people going by. I see friends shaking hands saying, how do you do? They're really saying, I love you. I hear babies crying. I watch them grow. They'll learn much more than I'll never know. And I think to myself, what a wonderful world. Yes, I think to myself, what a wonderful world. When I hear a song like that and the beautiful sentiments of it, I want it to be true. But I don't think that I can look at the world that I live in and say that that describes it well. I think it captures very well the longing of the human heart, the desire uh, for a world where things are like that. But I realize that that's, that's not the reality that I live with. And I think as we study the text before us, we realize that, that it is not the reality of the world that Jesus Christ himself lived in as well. As we read through this text, verse 35 is a fascinating statement of of context here. Jesus is going through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness. If you were to spend some time going back through chapters 8 through 9 of the Gospel of Matthew, prior to this observation, this summary statement, you will find that Jesus has been incredibly busy serving people. This was the work of his life, serving all kinds of people. As you would read through, you would see the healing of a leper, the healing of a centurion servant, Peter's healing of his mother-in-law, which is perhaps a miracle in its own right, uh, demon-possessed people being delivered, a paralyzed man being healed, the calling of Matthew 
a tax collector to become a servant of God himself, a ruler's daughter healed, a blind and mute man healed, tireless service through Galilee, attacting or attracting attention to the ministry and service of Jesus. Why is Jesus doing that? Why is he so devoted to and active in ministry to the needs of others? And I think I would argue from this text that all of this serving of Christ is in service to the greater goal of proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom to people who needed to know that there is hope for sinners. I believe this is the the driving force behind the ministry of Christ. So as we work our way through this text, I want to just give you a couple simple principles that I think will help to summarize the thrust or or, or main, uh, main topic of this text. The first one I think is this. If we're going to be an effective church family, and effective as individual believers, the first thing that we need to do is to make a commitment to serve others like Christ did. As you read through the Gospel of Matthew, you will find on a repeated basis that Jesus is incredibly busy in serving others. It was, it was part of his life experience as he walked this earth. And I, the question I want to submit to you this morning is this. As you look at the life of Christ and compare it to yours, is service and concern for others an identifiable and measurable part of my life experience? Okay, is is meeting the needs of those around me an identifiable and measurable mark of my life? And I think the reason that is so important is that the service that Jesus Christ was committed to is the service that created opportunities for the greater work and purpose of God in redeeming people from their deep sinfulness. So the first thought as I read through this text is Jesus just, in verse 35, incredibly busy serving with the aim of proclaiming the good news. Verse 36 then. As Jesus does, the, does these works of service and, and experiences seasons of miraculous activity, here's what you find. An audience is being attracted to him. And this is the way I believe that our service to others should work. We should know that our aim in serving people is to win an audience, to proclaim to them the greater hope of the gospel of Christ. And this, as you read through this, this is what happens. In verse 36, it says, when Jesus saw the crowds that are the result of ministries in chapters 8 through 9, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. So first, I need to serve like Jesus served. Second thing I need to do is this. I need to see like Jesus saw. I, 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 I tend to be a person who... When I drive down the road, driving down the interstate, I tend to be, especially as traffic gets heavier, I tend to be a person who is looking at the cars around me, and I, my mind just begins to wonder. If I'm at an athletic event, and I, I am around thousands of people at a large athletic event, I can't shut my mind off. I find that my mind keeps wanting to think about the lives of people represented around me. What is their life like? What are the pains that they have? What are the joys that they have? What are the heartaches? What are the sorrows? What are the things that are present in their life? And I, as, as, I, as I read this description of Jesus, as he sees the crowds, it begins to affect him deeply and personally. It begins to have an influence upon him. And here's the way that Matthew says it. And I, 
remember that as Matthew observes this, he's not writing it down. It's later that he will reflect back on this experience and begin to communicate as a biographer, if you will, what he saw in the life of Christ. And this to me is somewhat fascinating. In the context of this circumstance, Matthew reflects back on the observation of Jesus while he is seeing the crowd and looking at the multitude. It says he had compassion on them. And the idea of compassion in this text is the idea of deep tenderness and pity. There was something about the needs that Jesus observed that moved him into action. He couldn't merely see people and say, what a wonderful world. He saw people and thought, how broken, how sad, how difficult for people in so many circumstances of their lives. So he was deeply moved as he walked among people with an eye to seeing their needs. And here's what he always did. He was constantly adjusting his schedule to meet the needs that he saw. I want you to ask yourself this question this morning. As you work your way through your busy, hectic life, and I, I, it, it, I can relate to busy and hectic. In the last year and a half, I, finding margin, finding free time, finding time to care for people and to minister to people has been difficult, and that to me is frustrating. As Jesus interacted with people, there was something that stirred deeply within his heart, a tenderness and a desire to show kindness welled up within him as he looked at people. He was deeply affected by what he saw. It became for him personal. Why was the feeling so strong? That's the question that emerges. Why, as Jesus looked at this vast group of humanity in front of him, why was the moving on his heart so strong? And the text answers that question. It says he had compassion on them because, so here comes the reason, they were harassed and helpless. These words are strong. Uh, the, the one word means cutting, the other means to cast aside. So as Jesus looked at people in this general sense, he saw people who had been wounded in life and discarded. The result of that kind of treatment, that kind of experience, which many people have on a repeated basis, the result of that is hopelessness. And I think as Jesus looked at these people, this sense of kindness and tenderness and compassion began to overwhelm because he saw people who by the religious system and religious leaders of their day had been cut and cast aside, harassed and hurtled, if you will. That's the experience that Jesus has as he looks at the multitude. Primarily people who have been harassed by the burden of religion which demanded performance, brought increased guilt, but offered no lasting hope. And folks, Jesus had came to give life and to give it more abundantly. He had come to be the hope that people were longing for. So as, as the need meets the Savior, his life explodes in service with the aim of sharing with people the good and glorious news of his cross work. After that observation about them being harassed and cast aside, he, he makes this summary statement. He says they were like sheep without a shepherd. And to me, this is a kind of a fascinating conclusion. They were people in need of someone to say, not, don't go there, go here. And as he watched them, he realized that there were so few who were able to step up to the plate and to give helpful direction to people's lives. And the result of that was a compounded hopelessness. 
that Jesus had come to resolve and meet. See, the sad thing about untended sheep is that they are domestic animals. They're not animals that can protect nor provide for themselves. And so as Jesus looks at the crowd, he envisions a flock. And, and I, I, my, my mind runs to Psalm 23, where David can say, the Lord is my shepherd. That brings hope and solace into David's life. Jesus comes on the scene in John chapter 10 and makes a proclamation. It has Old Testament ramifications. He says, I am the good shepherd. And the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. So as Jesus encounters harassed and helpless people that are ruined and cast aside, he speaks to them in this context a message of hope. Uh, The hopelessness that we're talking about in this text manifests itself in the life of a few individuals that Jesus reaches out to. I think of a man like Zacchaeus. He was a tax collector in the ancient world, hated by the Jewish people. A man that lived for his own benefit. He began to hear about Jesus coming into town and he had issues with stature and so he goes and finds the high perch in a tree where he can at least look at Jesus but he knows that religious leaders don't want anything to do with him. So in his harassed condition, he hides out in a tree to get a view of someone who would never want to talk to him. And I love how the story turns. Jesus moves into that town. He points to Zacchaeus and says, Zacchaeus, come down. Come down. There's hope for you. I think of the woman at the well, harassed and cast aside, used and tossed. And Jesus comes to the woman at the well for a divine, to the, to the well at midday for a divine appointment to seek out a woman who is harassed and thrown aside, who feels nothing but deep hopelessness, but knows that as the good shepherd, he can meet her need. And I love how these stories, as you, as you would read through the New Testament, you would find over and over a Savior who overcomes racial barriers and religious barriers and moral downfalls and pitfalls and is rescuing people, bringing hope to people who were full of hopelessness. So strong is this seeking, so deeply moved is the tenderness and kindness of Christ, that at the, at, as, as you move through his life in the Gospels, you will find people accusing him of being the friend of sinners. Now, they're saying that to Jesus as a slight. For Jesus, that is a badge of honor. Why? He had come to heal the sick. He had come to find people who had been mutilated by life and to make them whole and powerful and precious and hopeful again. That's the nature of the ministry of Christ. And may it be the nature of our ministry as a church family. Jesus developed and cultivated relationships with people so that they could come to know him. And the reason he did that is that he came to serve. Secondly, he saw in a very unique way. And here's what I want to challenge you to do. I want to challenge you to gain the vision of Jesus. That as you live life, people are no longer the grain of sand in your shoe that causes irritation. They're the mission field that God has called you to reach. And may God encourage our hearts to look at the example of Christ and then to see like he saw and to be moved like he was moved and to begin to live the life that he lived. This morning I ask you this. How is your seeing this morning? How do you view the people around you? And then the last thought I want to kind of drive at is from verse verse, second half of 37 and 38. Then Jesus said to his disciples, as he looked at this vast need, 
He said, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. And this is a fascinating statement to me. Why would Jesus bring up the idea of harvest in this setting? You know, when I drive around this uh, valley that we have the benefit and pleasure of living in, I love the beauty of it. I love to watch the fields uh, get plowed every year. I love to watch the crops get planted. I love to watch them grow. And then there's this thing at the end in this season called harvest. And And I ask myself this question. When Jesus looked at the multitudes, when he saw the vast needs around him, what did he see? In other words, when you look at the world around you and you see all of the needs are out there, do you find it to be overwhelming or encouraging? It's a matter of perspective. It's how you see people. Jesus said, as he looked at the people, the harvest, referring to the large crowds, is plentiful. But the laborers are few. Here's what I think harvest is equivalent to in the mind of Jesus. I think in Jesus' mind, harvest is equivalent to opportunity. Harvest is equivalent to opportunity. And we as a church family, as believers living in our community before God, have been given an opportunity. And I hope that as we look at the world that God has called us to live in, as we look at the community that God has called us to serve and love, I pray that we will be people who see opportunity and who step up and say, for that harvest, I am available. I am willing to be used by God. Because here's the way that Jesus says it. He says, the harvest is plentiful, but here's the dilemma or the tension, if you will. The workers are few. And that is to me a, it's a sad statement. There's a a lot out there to be garnered with great benefit, but there aren't enough people to do the work. Okay, and I think it is in that sense that Jesus is giving a very powerful invitation to his disciples. There is a large opportunity that he points to. And calls them to meet. Jesus then gives the resolution to the problem. He says, ask the Lord of harvest. Therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. This to me is an amazing thing. Why would Jesus' response be pray first and then go? Why didn't he just say to them, go, do something? Right? Here I think is the reason. I think the reason is that he knows that only God himself can resolve the issues that are standing before him represented by the multitudes. We pray because we know that God uses willing people and because we know that any effective service or outreaching or gospelizing will only have eternal benefit when it is empowered by the work of the Spirit of God. And so in Acts 1.8, Jesus will say to his disciples, uh, You shall be my witnesses when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. He will give you clearer vision, deeper passion, and greater power to make a difference in the lives of those around you. Folks, here's what I want you to know. Every individual believer who is indwelt by the Spirit of God has been given a calling by God in relationship to the multitudes. And that is that God wants us to go out and make a difference in the harvest. He wants us to get up every day realizing that we live in a context of great opportunity. And one of my my frustrations recently has been not having time to get out and be with people. Uh, Not having time to go out and make the most of those opportunities. May God give us a, a heart like Christ 
that realizes that around me there is a lot of individuals who are damaged, who are hurt, who are hopeless. But through the gospel of Christ and the message of Christ, there is hope for people. Folks, let that truth settle over your heart and transform how you see people. People can be problems. I'll, I'll be honest. Okay? But people are opportunity for the glorious gospel of Christ. God wants you to serve them and he wants you to share truth that will change their life forever. Martin Luther, the great reformer, said this. He said, prayer is not enough because sometimes we tend to pray for things and sometimes God wants us, I believe, to stop praying, get off off our knees and go do something. Luther said this, at some point, I must leave my prayers and go to the field. May God help us as we meditate on and think on and pray for those in need to finally at some point get up off our knees and go and interact with people like Jesus did. To go and meet needs with the aim of meeting the greatest need of all. So as I go back to verse 35 and I see Jesus is going through all the towns, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness, I find that he's busy interacting with people because that interaction with people is the context in which the good news of the gospel springs forth and makes a difference in people's lives. So may God help us to see how Jesus saw, to serve like Jesus served, with the aim of sharing this beautiful story of hope with people that so desperately need to hear it. Now, one of the things that I know in my personal life is, it's rare that I have opportunity to share the gospel with people that I don't know personally. So one of the things that I think that we have to do in our lives as believers is begin to cultivate context. That's what Jesus is doing in, in his works of service. He didn't come to meet fundamentally temporary needs, though all of his miracles met temporary needs. He came to meet eternal needs. The way that I know that is when I look a little further in the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew 20, verse 28, Jesus says this, even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So folks, I hope that as you, as you look at the life of Jesus, you realize that he came and he lived an incredible life, but he did not merely come to give a good example, though he is that. He came to offer hope to sinners by bearing their sin on the cross so that by, they, by repentance and faith, might be reconciled to God. The aim of all of Jesus' temporal work was that he would have an eternal, make an eternal difference in people's lives. May that be our aim. So that all that we do in terms of serving and loving and caring for people is infused with the desire that they might come to know the King of Kings and Lord of Lords in a personal and permanent way that will affect our life for eternity. Here's the way Jesus said it. He said, I have come that you might have life and that you may have it more abundantly. You see, Jesus doesn't simply want to transform people's temporary situation. He wants to transform their eternal destiny. And if you're here this morning, we want you so clearly to hear this message. At the chapel, we aim to be a place where people can be invited to learn about and be introduced to the Good Shepherd, where broken people can find healing, where sinners can find grace and relationship with Jesus by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. 
and all that we do and all of our serving and all of our seeing and all of our going into our community has as its aim this amazing hope being made known to people around us. So as I go through this text, I see Jesus moving and working and serving. I see him seeing in a way that is transformational for his own heart, and then I see him proclaiming gospel message. For us as a church family, how does this work? And I, I, this is just simply by way of application. I look at the heart of Christ and I ask myself, is that what we're doing? Is that what I'm doing in my personal experience? One of my favorite writers has made this observation. He said the church should be the dearest place on earth. It should be the, the sweetest experience for people when they come. And so the question I have is this, is it? As people come seeking to know a little bit more about Christ, as they come perhaps for reasons that they haven't even clearly identified, perhaps it's because they have a friend that invited them. I met someone this morning. They came because a friend invited them to come. What do they find at the chapel at Warren Valley? What do they encounter? And the answer to that question is largely dependent on this question. And this question is this. When you're in your car driving to church on Sunday morning and getting ready to come in the building, what is your purpose? What is your aim? What is your goal? Do you come to consume or to serve like Jesus? And that's putting it a little bluntly, a little directly, okay? But every church has this, if you will, set of categories. And unless we're tweaked and prompted by the Spirit of God to look at the example of Christ, our natural tendency is to fall into the mindset of a consumer. And we're glad you're here, even if you're consuming, okay? We hope that God, by His grace, will give you His heart of compassion so that you will become a servant to meet the needs of those sitting right around you this morning. So as you came to church, what were you thinking? I hope I enjoy the sermon. I hope I enjoy worship. I hope it's comfortable. Can I encourage you as you drive to church just simply to say to God, how can I serve our guest like Jesus? How can I make a difference in someone's life today? I mean, God, change me. Let my heart be open to your word. Let me in worship together be an encouragement to, to, to you that you would be glorified and to those around me that they would be encouraged. Let that happen. But Lord, use me as I come. Don't let me be a consumer. Let me be someone who, who, who comes to give, to serve, and to make a difference in people's lives. Can I just remind you that when people visit a church, they tend to draw conclusions very, very quickly about whether they're coming back or not, about what they think about the church. As they're getting out of their cars, they come to the door. They're drawing conclusions about how welcoming and inviting and loving people are. May people see in us and through us Jesus. May they experience a love that to them is attractive. One of the things I learned in the realm of, uh, of business is this. If in the context of your business life, people have a bad experience, they talk a lot about it. If people have an average experience, they tend to say... Nothing, as expected. But if they have a positive experience, they tend to talk about it. 
This should be our goal as a church family. If you're visiting with us, we want you to know this. Okay, our aim is that you would come and experience something of Christ's love that works as an appetizer in your life that you would say, I want to know him more. If those people know Christ and he's changed them like that, they're, they're different than the ordinary setting in my life. Then I want to know that Savior. If he gives them that kind of passion and that kind of purpose and that kind of reason to live, I want to be part of that. And I want to know the one who is bringing transformation and change into their lives. How does this work at the practical level? And I just want to be very, very practical this morning. At the level of, for instance, a family that shows up with children at a church, what happens in those back three rooms where our childcare setting is, is crucial. It determines whether people that have children will come back or not. If they find a clean, safe, friendly, courteous environment, they're likely to come back. But if they find unprepared, unwilling, uh, things that aren't part of what we have, our desire is to provide a clean and safe and welcoming environment for kids. Everyone that works in that area of ministry or in our church is in the process of doing gospel. Because it's there that we are making known in the most practical, tangible, concrete terms the love of Christ. By how we treat people and by how we respond to them and how we uh, take care of their children in our child care ministries. The excellence that we seek to provide. Another simple thought, and I, I thought, okay, don't share. This is kind of silly, but this is true. When someone comes into a church service, let's say they're visiting and they, they got here a little bit late and they're walking down the aisle and you catch them in your peripheral. Okay? What do you do? Well, if you're here to serve, what you do is you look at them and smile and say, I'm going to move in my room and make room for you. That, That small type of gesture has such a substantial and fundamental impact on people. So I'm going to encourage you, just think. Think like a visitor. Last Sunday, I had a friend visit our church family. I think Tim Matthews and I are the only people that have ever met this man and his wife and child. So... All right, so I'm always analyzing things, okay? As a pastor, I'm always, how are we doing with the things that God has called us to do? How are we doing with welcoming guests and loving people in the context of our church family? So I watched this man and his wife and child, and I went over by the front door. They actually came and sat uh, in the couches right out there. So in my mind, what am I thinking? There's a lot of people in the foyer. Here's what I know. No one has ever seen these people before except Tim Matthews and I. And you know what I was hoping? I was hoping that someone unprompted would go over and talk to them. Because I'm supposed to. James is supposed to. Doug's supposed to. They're staff members. And I'm going to tell you this. Honestly, I was disappointed. Now, I don't mean that to hurt you, okay? I don't mean it in that way at all. I mean, my expectation went unmet. And I don't think that the expectation is unrealistic. But did you get, praise God. I could tell because you're standing up. And I can actually see you. Okay? But as I was there and watched, they sat there. No one else was sitting there. 
And here's my challenge to you, because you have to ask yourself, okay, I was here last Sunday, why didn't I go talk to them? And it's, and it's a good question. It's fair for us to think, think through these things, okay? Challenge yourself. Maybe you saw them sitting there, okay? So here, here's what I would challenge you to do. I don't think that after church, we're like, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to take care of myself. I'm going to go sit in the cafe space. I'm going to get myself a cup of coffee, and I'm going to ignore new people because that's what Jesus would do, okay? I, I don't think anybody comes to church thinking like, I don't think that's the way it works. I think the, the way it works is this. I don't come with the heart of Christ saying, I look forward to the opportunity to interact with someone that's visiting at our church this morning. I don't think that's how we come. And I think our default mechanism is this. I think our default mechanism is that we tend to drift into the realm of the comfortable. Okay? I would much rather talk, and, and look, I know most of you think I am a, I'm just a profoundly extroverted person. It's not true. I am very comfortable in my own world. And I have, I have tried to work at this idea of friendliness because I've been to my wife's class reunion. Okay, where she knows everybody that she can recognize now. And I don't know anybody. So here's a secret. I didn't go to my wife's last class reunion. You know why? It's not comfortable. I hope and pray that when people visit the chapel at Warren Valley, it doesn't feel like a class reunion. I hope and pray that God will give us the heart of Christ that longs to serve people because we have a greater aim in mind, not just that they would leave feeling loved, but that they would leave changed. And all of our serving and all of our greeting and all of our reaching out to people and loving them and encouraging them is in service to the gospel. It's to help them to see a little bit more clearly what Jesus is like because they're seeing him in his followers. And that's the way that it should be in our lives. Our hospitality is crucial. Our loving of people is crucial. All that we do in it aims to adorn the gospel and draw people and attract people to know Jesus. So that it's not low-level service. It's vitally important. Because in the context of those relationships that you begin to cultivate, God begins to work. So the first thing I want to say to you is this. When you come on Sunday, take three minutes after the worship service and just simply walk up to someone you haven't met and just say, I don't think I've met you before. And they'll say, well, Pastor Tim told you to do that, so it's the only reason you're doing it. <laughs> no. uh, just find someone that you haven't talked to and just for the love of Christ that you know and have been changed by, just begin to interact with people. I, I would love if the culture of this church was that unbelievably welcoming for people. Genuine, not over the top, but really caring. Because here's what I do too as a pastor. I watch how people respond to that kind of love. I watch how people respond when one person walks in and says, hey, here's another friend of mine, and you introduce them. You see this light, lightning, this, I'm not a, at a reunion, okay? I'm welcome here. And it's that simple, folks, that we can begin to give an entree and let people know that this 
the church of Christ in every setting should be the dearest place on earth where people are welcomed and feel comfortable and where awkwardness is not tolerated and where we, we love and, and seek to involve and include people. So that's on Sunday, but what about Monday? And I want to share an illustration. I didn't get to ask these people if I could share this, but I'm going to do it anyhow. I have a friend in our church family named Bill. Bill is, so that I can keep this as obscure as possible, he's retired, which actually narrows it down to one person. No, it doesn't. Bill visits a local gym on a pretty routine basis. Uh, He's in his 70s. And he has cultivated a relationship with someone that's actually sitting in this room this morning. Has prayed for them, has shared verses with them, because he thinks that his going should be seeking and serving. Now, the interesting twist in, in, the, in the story is this. I recently met someone through a work experience and had the privilege of getting to know this young person and sharing with them a little bit. And I'm talking with them, this uh, young man, and uh, just doing what I do, sharing Christ. I've, he knows that's what I'm doing. Um, turns out that that young man that I'm talking to is the boyfriend of the girl at the gym that Bill's talking to. But Bill and I don't know that. Okay? Here's what I want to tell you, folks. There's nothing magnificent about what I did. It's just everything in my life is pretty average. Okay? But I, I, I do have a burden from God to share Christ with people. I think as every Christian, we should be cultivating that desire and getting past the fear of being rejected and begin to communicate with people the truth that matters most because we care. It's, it's inexcusable to not share it. But when, when that kind of thing happens and you begin to see God working through your weak efforts, it is glorious. And God begins to move. God begins to show up. Here's what I'm always thinking. When I'm sharing the gospel with a friend of mine uh, through the workplace environment that I have the benefit of being in now, I'm always wondering, what other Christian in their sphere of influence has been praying for them for years that someone would come along and interact with them and let them know that there is hope for hopeless people? I have one specific relationship in my life where I still don't know if that person exists in their life but I can't help but think there's someone in this young man's life that knows Christ, that has shared, because of the things that he said to me, someone has been trying to share Jesus with this guy. And God brought me along to be the exclamation point on the end of the sentence of God loves you and will forgive you when you trust him. So when I come to church on Sunday, I can be doing gospel, and I should be. And when I go out to work on Monday, I should be doing gospel because there are people that desperately need to know Christ. I've, I've told you this story, and I'm going to end with this story this morning. I told you the story of uh, a man in a little town called North Wales, Pennsylvania, 1964. He's a huckster. He sells groceries door to door. He's a Christian. And he thinks that his life can make a difference. 
And so he, as he, as a Christian, selling groceries door to door, meat and produce, that was the main thing that he sold. His name is Frank Robinson. He would consistently, in the most simple terms, communicate the love of Christ to my mom. To the point that my mom finally said to my dad, you know, this guy keeps asking us to go to church with him. We need to go to church with him to get him off our back. And so my parents went. They went into a context where the love of Christ was made known, where people saw like Jesus saw, people hopeless and broken. Frank Robinson had no idea that in the time period leading up to that encounter, my dad in the context of his workshop, had had a nervous breakdown. Just under the weight of life, crashed. Never saw treatment, just, he said, I had four kids. All born within the period of five years. There was no option. And then the gospel came. And he went to church with my mom. The second week that my parents went to church, they trusted Christ. That's my story. The reason I have the privilege of knowing Christ is because someone like Frank Robinson thought that his aluminum panel truck was a pulpit for proclaiming the gospel of Christ. And so it was by faith that the life of Frank Robinson led to the salvation of my family, my salvation, praise God, and becoming a pastor one day. I would not tell you that story if Frank Robinson was a stellar man with unique capacities and capabilities because it would frustrate you. And here's what you would say, yep, that's the kind of people God uses and he doesn't use people like me. But that's not true. God uses average people to be your pastors. He uses average people to make a difference in people's lives. And when you go to him and say, I am praying the Lord of harvest to send forth laborers in the harvest, I ask you to add this, and Lord, send me. And if you're here this morning, you've never trusted Christ, here's what we need to know. The aim of our friendliness, the aim of our trying to get this place to look halfway decent, okay? Apart from the outside, which looks hideous, right? Let's be honest, okay? But here's what we hope. We hope that the love of Christ that you encounter in this place causes you to forget what the outside looks like and that you will continue to pursue and to desire to know the one who can change your life, the one who, when he looked at the multitudes, thought of you, and the one who, when he went to the cross, thought of you, paid the price for your sins so that by grace alone, gift, through faith alone, trusting, you would be forgiven and set free for the glory of God. That is what he aims to do in your life. If you're visiting with us, if we're friendly today, praise God. And our desire, our hope, is that you would come to know and trust in Jesus, who looked at the multitudes, who saw your face in that larger crowd of eternity, and was moved with compassion, and went to the cross to pursue, to seek, and to save a sinner like you and me. That's what he does best. And it is that desire that inflames our heart as a church family. That we might come on Sunday and go on Monday realizing that my life can make a difference. The greatest enemy is preoccupation with personal concerns. And that's the 
if you will, the demon that you have to slay, the thinking that my life matters more than the kingdom. Jesus busted that by service. And Jesus busted that by the gospel. That has changed your heart. And hopefully will change Monday morning for you. And how you leave this place today. With the joy of Christ on your lips. And gratitude that he went to the cross to seek and to save that which is lost. May that be our aim as the people of God. Father, I pray this morning that the message of this text would sink deeply into our heart. That represented in the world that we live in is a vast multitude of people that don't know the truth of Christ. And Lord, that for us is opportunity to take the good news of Christ into the lives and hearts of people that don't yet know him so that hopelessness can be dispelled and so that they may know life and know it more abundantly through our Savior, Jesus Christ. Father, I pray this morning that if there is a friend here who has heard the gospel, who has been processing and wrestling with what it means to trust Christ, and today they feel in, 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 in a unique way you're calling and you're drawing them, I pray, God, that they might uh, come to the front as we sing our closing song and say, Pastor, I, I, I want to know Christ. I want to know hope. I know what it is to be cut and tossed aside. I want to be restored by the power of God's grace. I want to be forgiven and trust him. Perhaps, Father, there's people here this morning who may need to come to the altar this morning and they know you but aren't serving you. They are preoccupied with personal uh, items and issues and have no margin for the gospel in their life. God, raise up Frank Robinsons in our church. Raise up Bills in our church. Raise up young people in this church who need to share Christ to see the disparity between the great harvest and the few workers and pray, God, send me. Lord, let that be our heart cry. Maybe some of us this morning, Lord, need just to come up and confess at the altar, God, my heart is so self-centered. Set me free. Be your servant. We pray in Jesus' name.